Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay for this week, for the last Sunday of the year, is called The Best of the Rest, 2013, Books and Films. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 29th, 2013. Every Sunday night, Journey with Jesus posts an essay based on the Revised Common Lectionary, a book review, a film review, and some poetry. And then once a month, David Werther writes a music review for us. Over the holidays, I reviewed our, reviewed our reviews for 2013. Of course, there's no accounting for personal taste, but here are my favorite books and films from the last year, 2013. And by the way, don't miss our comprehensive index of book reviews, where you can search over 400 book reviews alphabetically by author, or by 14 different subject categories like history, economics, science, art, memoir, and so on. Similarly, with our comprehensive index of film reviews, you can search our movie reviews alphabetically by title or by country with films from 80 countries. And if you ever get stuck, just go to the upper left corner of our home page or any page and you'll find a little box called Search Our Site. And so here are 10 films and 10 books, the best of the rest, 2013. First, the films. Number one, Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry, 2012, from China. In October 2011, Art Review Magazine named Ai Weiwei the number one artist in the world in their annual Top 100. This 90-minute documentary gives a good feel for his art, which has been featured at major galleries around the world, and for his aggressive protests against the Chinese government. If we don't push things, says Ai Weiwei, nothing will happen. I watch this on Netflix streaming. Number two, proceeding alphabetically, Amour, 2012, from France. Director Michael Haney won the best film at the 2012 Cannes Film Festival for this portrayal of an octogenarian couple who come to the end of their long love. Old age isn't for sissies, but that's not the end of the world if it's a love story like this. We've always coped, your mother and I, George says to his daughter. In French, with English subtitles. Number three, Detroitia, 2012. This sad documentary looks at the fate of contemporary Detroit, which, as I write, is now in bankruptcy. In 1930, it was the fastest-growing city in the world. The filmmakers look at the city through the eyes of a restaurant owner and a UAW president, and to a lesser extent through the perspectives of a video blogger, the mayor, Dave Bing, the Detroit Opera, and resilient citizens who refuse to give up. 
Number four, Django Unchained. Quentin Tarantino's Spaghetti Western has been criticized for its graphic violence about slavery, even though parody is always near. It's no worse than any other of his other films, which isn't saying much, of course, but fans and critics have still loved it. In fact, it was nominated for four Oscars. Number five, Enemies of the People, from Cambodia, 2009. Tet Sambath's brother and parents were among the two to three million people killed by execution, torture, starvation, and disease in the genocide by the ruthless Khmer Rouge, Cambodia's Communist Party that ruled the country from 1975 to 1979. For 10 years, Sambat spent his weekends taking his camcorder around the country to record the oral histories of all who would speak to him about those dark days. The film premiered at the 2010 Sundance Film Festival. I watched Enemies of the People on Netflix streaming. Number six, Fruitvale Station. 2013. Fruitvale Station won several awards at both Sundance and Cannes for its dramatization of the murder of 22-year-old Oster Grant by BART police in Oakland on December 31, 2008. It's the first film by director Ryan Coogler, who was still a film student at USC when he pitched the idea back in 2011. And as fate would have it, the movie was released right after George Zimmerman was acquitted for shooting Trayvon Martin. Number 7, The Gatekeepers, 2012, Israel. This documentary interviews all six living former heads of Shin Bet, Israel's secretive security agency that's the rough equivalent of the CIA. These chastened men look back over 50 years of the Palestinian conflict and conclude to a person that peace through violence will never happen. As one of them said, when you retire and think about things, it makes you a leftist. Another one said, we've become a cruel people. In Hebrew, with English subtitles. Number eight, they Call It Myanmar, 2012, from the country Myanmar, or Burma. Next to North Korea, Burma might be the most closed country in the world. Robert Lieberman, a physicist at Cornell, was invited to Burma by the U.S. State Department. He spent two years documenting what he experienced. Burma is a land of contrast. It has Buddhist temples that are 2,500 years old. It's home to over 130 ethno-linguistic groups. But with a history of British colonization, Japanese occupation, and a military regime since 1948, it has suffered horribly. Since this film was made, both Hillary Clinton and President Obama have visited Burma with signs from both sides of political change. 
I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Number nine, To the Wonder, 2013. This film follows Terrence Malick's 2011 film, The Tree of Life, which won the best film at the Cannes Film Festival. The two are quite similar in form and content. Except for the whispery voiceovers, the characters in this film almost never speak. This is a film of images, not linear narrative. We never learn anyone's name. Javier Bardem plays a priest who struggles with all the sorrow he experiences. He says, all I see is failure, destruction, and ruin. But the last line of the movie is a life-affirming prayer. Love that loves us, thank you. And number 10, a film from Saudi Arabia, Wajda. I'll spell that W-A-D-J-D-A, 2013. Wajda is a spunky 10-year-old girl in Riyadh who's living on the adolescent borderline between innocence and knowledge. She wears canvas high tops with stars and purple shoelaces, paints her toenails, listens to rock music at home, and saves up to buy a bike so that she can race her neighborhood buddy, Abdullah. The film, written and directed by Haifa Al-Mansur, is the first feature-length film by a woman in Saudi Arabia, and it tackles gender roles head-on. In Arabic, with English subtitles. And now for 10 books. And as with the films, proceeding alphabetically. Number one, Bernard Balin, The Barbarous Years, The Peopling of British North America, The Conflict of Civilizations, 1600 to 1675. Bernard Balin's 20 books have earned him two Pulitzer Prizes, a Bancroft Prize, a National Book Award, and the National Humanities Medal. This volume completes his trilogy on the peopling of North, on the North American continent that began with the 1986 book, The Peopling of British North America, and then also in 1986, Voyagers to the West. Balin disabuses us of the stereotype of white Anglicans displacing Native Americans. These people face deep conflicts in every area of life. Racial conflicts with the Indians, religious conflicts within and between groups, conflicts with public and private authorities, conflicts about property rights, conflicts among ethno-linguistic subcultures. But by the end of the 17th century, the Atlantic seaboard was a globalized world, what one scholar calls the first hemispheric community in human history. Number two, Karima Benue. Your fatwa does not belong here. Untold stories from the fight against Muslim fundamentalism, 2013. How do you condemn suicide bombings and public beheadings? 
without incurring the charge of being anti-Islam. Karima Benoue opposes those on the right who would feed anti-Muslim agendas, but she's just as hard on leftist liberal multiculturalists who make concessions in the name of tolerating religious differences. We often hear the question, why don't Muslims speak out against the violence perpetrated by their religion? Benoit's oral history collects the stories of Muslims who are, in fact, repudiating violence. It's based upon interviews with 286 Muslims from 26 countries. Number three, Catherine Boo, that's B-O-O. -O. Behind the Beautiful Forevers, Life, Death, and Hope in a Mumbai Undercity. 2012. Across the street from Mumbai's glistening international airport, encircled by five luxury hotels, and next to a vast pool of sewage, is a tiny slum called Anawadi. Because of its location, it's magnificently positioned for a trafficker in rich people's garbage. And if you live in Anawadi, that's exactly what you do. You collect sort, and sell garbage. 8,000 tons a day of Mumbai's garbage. Catherine Boo, who spent four years living in Anawati to research this book, won a Pulitzer Prize for earlier work on group homes for the mentally retarded. In November 2012, this book won the National Book Award. Number four, Esther DeWall, editor, The Celtic Vision, Prayers, Blessings, Songs, and Incantations from the Gaelic Tradition, 2001. For 60 years, the folklorist Alexander Carmichael traversed Scotland's Outer Hebrides Isles, collecting and translating the traditions of its Gaelic Catholic people. His Labor of Love was published in six volumes across 70 years with the long title Carmina Gedelica, Hymns of the Gale, Hymns and Incantations with Illustrative Notes on Words, Rites, and Customs, Dying and Obsolete, Orally Collected in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. Esther DeWall's book is a collection of excerpts which she's edited and organized into 16 different categories. It's a wonderful and easy entry into the Celtic vision. Number five, Chris Hitchens. The title of the book, Mortality, 2012. When Christopher Hitchens died of esophageal cancer in 2011, the world lost one of its most colorful and controversial public intellectuals. In this posthumous volume, Hitchens describes his last days. He meditates on the poetry of T.S. Eliot. Quote, I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and I am afraid. End quote. As for Philip Larkin's famous poem, Obeyed, with its terrifying description of fear in the face of death, 
Hitchens describes it as an implied reproof of Stoicism and then concludes, quote, Atheists ought not to be offering consolation either, end quote. And there's one tantalizing tidbit in the last chapter of Unfinished Jottings. Hitchens writes, If I convert, it's because it's better that a believer dies than that an atheist does. This is left unexplained, and otherwise Hitchens remained an atheist to the end. Number six, Yevgeny Morozov. The title of the book, To Save Everything, Click Here, The Folly of Technological Solutionism, 2013. The self-described digital heretic Evgeny Morozov deconstructs the hubris of Silicon Valley that would fix all our problems including its disdain for anyone who questions its motives, means, and goals. Number seven, Michael Moss. Salt, sugar, fat. How the food giants hooked us, 2013. The United States is the most obese country in the world. Michael Moss, winner of a Pulitzer Prize for earlier work, explains how we got to this point. It's true consumers bear their own responsibilities, but he lays the blame squarely upon the food behemoths like Cargill, Philip Morris, Kraft, General Foods, and Coca-Cola for poisoning us. Despite a few hopeful signs from the food industry, don't expect any help from them. They deny their culpability, nor from the government, which aids and abets them. But at the end of the day, we're not helpless. We do have choices. Number eight, John Schwartz. The title of the book, Oddly Normal. One family struggled to help their teenage son come to terms with his sexuality. 2012. Joseph Schwartz was the third child for John and Jean Schwartz, so they felt pretty good about their parenting skills. But early on they knew that Joseph was different. As a preschooler he loved pink shoes, played with dolls, hated sports. His father writes, we knew we had a very girly boy. Being gay wasn't a problem in their view, but knowing it for sure and knowing how to help Joseph with the ramifications took many more difficult years. This book is a powerful reminder of how hard it is to be different. Book number nine, Sonia Sotomayor, My Beloved World, 2013. Sonia Sotomayor was a young girl when she knew she wanted to become a judge. There were a few obstacles, though. She was born to Puerto Rican immigrants in the tenement projects of the Bronx. Spanish was the first language at home. 
When she was seven, she was diagnosed with type 1 juvenile diabetes and started giving herself daily insulin shots. When she was nine, her alcoholic father died, leaving his wife a single mom at the age of 36. No one in the family ever had a bank account. Sotomayor writes in an informal style and with unusual candor and vulnerability about her unlikely pilgrimage. The only disappointing thing about this book is that it ends 20 years ago when she became a federal judge. And book number 10, Jean Theo Harris, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, 2013. This new biography of the mother of the civil rights movement coincided with the 100th anniversary of her birth on February 4, 1913. Remarkably, it's the first comprehensive and critical biography of one of the most important women in American history. Theo Harris dispels two common myths about Rosa Parks. First, she was no accidental heroine. She had been an active leader in the civil rights movement since 1943, when she joined the NAACP. And second, her refusal to give up her seat was not the random act of a single day. In Rosa Parks' own words, I had almost a life history of being rebellious against being mistreated because of my color. Well, there you go. The top 10 films and books from 2013 at journeywithjesus.net. And for a new book review for December 29th, I've reviewed a book by Mary Pfeiffer, The Green Boat, Reviving Ourselves in Our Capsized Culture. New York Riverhead Books, 2013, 237 pages. Mary Pfeiffer, a clinical psychologist in Nebraska, has written nine books. She's best known for her title, Reviving Ophelia, Saving the Cells of Our Adolescent Girls, 1994, which spent three years on the New York Times bestseller list. In this, her newest book, she turns from the inner world of individuals to the outer world of the entire planet, and in particular, to the consequences of climate change. Although the two books deal with different subject matters, she says she wrote them for the same reason. To identify a unique cultural moment in which people feel overwhelmed, and to move us to act and to create a new paradigm. The book's title, The Green Boat, refers to the boat-shaped piece of land where Pfeiffer lives in Nebraska. It's a glorious ecosystem on a lake, but like so much of planet Earth, it faces serious ecological dangers. Pfeiffer's own wake-up call came when she read the book Earth by Bill McKibben. She said she felt shell-shocked by the harsh and pessimistic conclusions drawn by the famous environmentalists. But instead of wallowing in despair, she became an activist in the climate change movement. The last half of the book describes her efforts to create a coalition to fight the 2,000-mile Trans-Canada Keystone XL pipeline, part of which would run through her home state of Nebraska. 
the jury is still out on the fate of the pipeline. Her coalition has enjoyed some victories, but they also experienced the power of corporate wealth and political corruption. What Pfeiffer learned, she says, is that our inner and outer worlds are deeply connected. She writes, I have learned that reviving the planet and reviving ourselves are not opposed, but rather deeply congruent behaviors. Fixing inner and outer space are the same process. We can't heal ourselves without healing our environments, and we can't be mentally healthy when the green boat is sinking and we are pretending the trauma isn't happening. Mary Pfeiffer, The Green Boat. And for films this week, I review a movie that very well could have made our list of best films of 2013. It's called Inequality for All. Hardly a month goes by without mention of the growing gap between the rich and poor. There are important disagreements about the causes consequences, and solutions of radical inequality, but the reality of inequality is undeniable. Robert Reich, Secretary of Labor under President Bill Clinton, an economics professor at Berkeley, narrates this documentary about what's happened to the American economy in the last 30 years. He has a marvelous sense of humor that defuses a divisive issue in a passion and technical expertise about his life work. Yes, there are a welter of graphs and statistics, but also lots of good storytelling and interviews with ordinary Americans. There will always be inequality in any economy. The question, says Reich, is how much is too much? With vocal agitators on the right, like the Tea Party, and on the left, like the Occupy movement, it seems like we've reached that limit. What nation's economy should we imitate, asks Reich. He has the perfect answer. He says, America in its earlier and better days. The title of the film, Inequality for All, from 2013. And as we end this calendar year and the holiday season and the prospect for a new year, we've posted a poem by U.A. Fanthorpe, who was born in 1929. It's called B.C.A.D. This was the moment when before turned into after and the future's uninvented timekeepers presented arms. This was the moment when nothing happened. Only dull peace sprawled boringly over the earth. This was the moment when even energetic Romans could find nothing better to do than counting heads in remote provinces. And this was the moment when a few farm workers and three members of an obscure Persian sect walked haphazard by starlight straight into the kingdom 
of God. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 29th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.